Hello and welcome once again to the Raw Attitude Podcast, where we chronologically take you through episodes of Monday Night Raw from the Attitude Era. I am, of course, your host, professional wrestler Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex. As always, thank you for listening, and we welcome your feedback at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or reaching out to us via Twitter at Raw Attitude Pod, and of course, do not forget you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and now Google Play as well for all you Android users. And on that note, we have some listeners in a new country as well. Shout out to the Southwest Asian nation of Azerbaijan. I don't know if I pronounced your country's name correctly, but I'm glad you're with us. Welcome aboard. Also, we received another five-star review on iTunes, and this one is from friend of the show, Mr. William Rankin from the New Blood Rising podcast, who was also kind enough to give us a shout-out on their recent Vengeance 2001 episode of the show. Martin, ever since like I've listened to the Raw Attitude podcast, I can't help but like, I, I, I have Henry's like cadence in my head when I, <laughs> when I do these openings now. Like yeah. I'm, he... It, I, Martin, that he's, was... He's so good at that. It's like all just one take. It is. I, there, I wrote a review on for his iTunes. I was like, it is the most digestible uh, podcast that's out there. You can get everything you need in a very, very condensed but efficient format. And just, it, it's beautiful. Because it's like, I mean, it's of course, it's different once there's another person on there. But it's usually like, what, a 30-minute run? Something mm-hmm. like that? It's great. Yeah. Too kind, sir. Too kind. His review states, quote... Henry has a wonderful delivery of information in a one-man podcast. It is the most digestible wrestling podcast out there. If you need to take a train or a ride and want a complete show, buy the ticket and take the ride back into 1998 on the USA Network when there was such a thing as a TV version of the net and Baywatch on a bike, a.k.a. Pacific Blue. Oh, man, that takes me back. Don't don't forget La Femme Nikita as well. They they pimped that one pretty hard for a while, too. Uh, But thank you very much for that kind review, Mr. Rankin. I really appreciate it. And I look forward to having you on this show sometime in the coming months, specifically once we get around to the May 25th, 1998 episode of Raw, since I know that one's a favorite of yours. And, of course, you can catch William Rankin and previous guest co-host of this show, Martin Dixon, on the New Blood Rising podcast, where they're currently recapping the WWF pay-per-views from late 2001, soon moving on to early 2002. Great show. Definitely subscribe to it as soon as possible. Next up, some exciting news to report. The Raw Attitude podcast is now part of the Questionable Endeavor Network, a media network run by some friends of mine with contributions from me as well. Currently, there are four other podcasts in the network, and I would recommend you also subscribe to these if they sound like your cup of tea. The Rundown Wrestling Podcast, a recap of what happens each week in the world of wrestling. That show's host, Adam, guest-hosted episode 9 of this podcast with me. The Shadowvane Podcast, a radio drama with stories of horror, science fiction, and suspense. That show's host Andy guest-hosted episode 7 of this podcast with me. Tuning Japanese, that's T-O-O-N-I-N-G, as in cartoon, where three guys in their 30s discuss Japanese anime. And the Geek and Gamer Guild, covering all things pertaining to geek and video game culture. 
And please be sure to check out our brand new website at questandnetwork.com. There is information about all the shows there, as well as a brand new forum where you can interact directly with me anytime you want. Be sure to head over there and drop us a line because I always enjoy receiving feedback, preferably good feedback, but I will take your criticisms under advisement as well. Before we begin, it has come to my attention that former WWF head writer Vince Russo now has a podcast where he occasionally recaps episodes of Monday Night Raw from the Attitude Era. So I would just like to tell Mr. Russo that I have hired the legal team of David Otunga and Clarence Mason, and we will be pursuing further action if you do not cease and desist this outright plagiarism of your own product. Okay, I guess I haven't exactly thought this one through yet, but anyway, my podcast is better, so listen to this one instead. And uh, Vince, if you want to come on the show sometime, I will be sure to drop the lawsuit. And finally, before we get into this week's show, a quick word about our previous episode, the WrestleMania 14 slash Raw Mega episode. Feedback was overwhelmingly positive, and it garnered our highest number of plays for any episode to date, which pushed our total number of plays over 1,000. I'm sure a lot of other podcasts reached that milestone too, but I'm tremendously proud of the fact that this show has really found a following, and that is all thanks to you, the fans of the Raw Attitude Podcast. So I just want to let you know that I truly appreciate the fact that you enjoy the show, and I really hope you stick with us because there are some great Attitude Era moments coming up in the next several weeks and months. So again, thank you very much, and I will do my best to make sure that the show is constantly improving. With that being said, let's get into this week's episode. It is Monday, April 6, 1998, and we are pre-taped six days in advance from Syracuse, New York. Good thing Shawn Michaels is no longer traveling with the roster. After a quick recap of last week's incidents where Steve Austin hit Vince McMahon with the Stone Cold Stunner and was subsequently arrested, we queue up the opening credits, the pyro, and the obligatory scanning of the crowd. A bevy of classy signs tonight, including What is Wrong with Jim Ross's Eye? Now that's just mean. Sonny, show me your tits, and somehow Tyson gave me a blowjob. I posted a picture of that one on our Twitter, at RawAttitudePod, so check it out if you get a chance. And I will also have to take Kevin Dunn to task for zooming in right on a sign which says Vince is a fag. Ah yes, 1998, when wrestling fans actually took the time to craft homophobic signs for no real reason whatsoever. And speaking of Vince McMahon, we kick off the festivities with him walking to the ring, accompanied by loud boos and Austin chants. He says that having Austin arrested was one of the toughest things he has ever had to do, but he has had second thoughts about it, and as a result of his benevolence, he made sure that Stone Cold was released from jail that very night. Not only that, but he now knows that Steve Austin has learned his lesson, and he will no longer be a beer-swilling, hand-gesturing, trash-talking, blue-collar WWF champion. He says that what he has accomplished may be the proudest moment of his career because he is going to introduce us to the new and improved Stone Cold Steve Austin tonight in this very ring. He even goes one step further by saying, I guarantee it or your money back. After Vince leaves, Dan the Beast Severn walks to the ring, accompanied by Jim Cornette. Severn is wearing the UFC Superfight Championship belt around his waist and holding the NWA Heavyweight Championship, and Cornette is also holding two other belts, so clearly the man has either won a lot of fights or he's best friends with a local title belt manufacturer. We then cut to a montage of Severn's career in mixed martial arts, including quite a bit of UFC footage, and then we see him beat down the headbangers last week. We then head back to the arena where we see that it's time for the debut match of Severn in the WWF, and he is facing Flash Funk. Severn's face is completely emotionless, and he comes to the ring wearing a plain gray t-shirt, which appears to be soaked with sweat. His gimmick appears to be Steve Blackman, but with less personality. With that being said, Mr. Severn, if you're listening, I apologize, and please don't hurt me. 
Also in this match, Severn is infringing on Steve Austin's gimmick by wearing plain black tights, but then again, who's going to tell him to stop? As you might expect, the match was pretty brief, and truthfully a little bit sloppy in parts. Flash went for a crossbody, but Severn caught him, hit him with an over-the-shoulder back-to-belly pile driver, think of Sheamus's white noise for a point of reference, and then transitioned into an armbar for the tap-out victory, holding onto the move a few seconds longer, even after the ref had called for the bell. In fact, Dan Severn beat Flash Funk so badly that he retired the name Flash Funk. Yes, that's right, folks. This is the final Monday Night Raw match for Flash Funk. Now, of course, he's still going to be in the WWF, and he'll just be taking on a different name, but because he has been using this terrible gimmick for almost a year and a half now, I think it's appropriate for us to send Flash Funk to Wrestler Heaven. brand new incarnation of D-Generation X heads to the ring to cut their very first promo as a group, accompanied by their iconic theme song, which was performed by Chris Warren. And on that note, very sad to hear that Chris Warren passed away recently. Not only is his DX theme song a classic, but he also goes on to create a theme for Triple H in China a little later in the Attitude Era, which is also remembered pretty fondly. And as a side note, I had actually played his versions of the Star Spangled Banner and America the Beautiful on the previous episode of this podcast, so check out episode 15 if you want to hear those, because the WWE has since tried to erase them from memory. R.I.P. Chris Warren. We get a quick flashback to last week on Raw, where the new DX was formed in a brutal beatdown of Cactus Jack and Chainsaw Charlie. This version of the group consists of European champion Triple H, new tag team champions the New Age Outlaws, X-Pac, and China. Triple H grabs the mic first and says he promised us an army last week, and he lives up to all of his promises. Road Dog then does his ladies and gentlemen routine and calls the new DX, quote, a marriage made in heaven. X-Pac then grabs the mic and appears to once again not understand that the group is supposed to be heels because he asks the Syracuse crowd to make some noise. He then takes another shot at WCW by saying you won't be seeing, quote, the grumpy old men stinking the joint up. Pretty good line there. Now, there's no possible way he can screw up the promo after that, right? Is young and hungry, baby. This is Degeneration X, and we're getting jiggy with it. Uh, so let it be known that in the first ever promo for the new DX, that young upstart group of rebels, X-Pac ended his portion by quoting Will Smith, the most commercial and inoffensive rapper of all time. If you ever wondered why Sean Waltman didn't get the mic very often during these segments, now you know why. Triple H then declares war on the WWF and makes a reference to his Johnson being a bazooka. The whole group says suck it, and that's how we wrap it up. Very interesting that DX is declaring war on the WWF because they certainly end up shifting that war to a different wrestling company very soon, but I suppose we'll cross that bridge when we come to it in just a few weeks. After a commercial break, we then go backstage where DX needlessly bullies a stagehand by spray-painting his shirt, beating him up, and then putting a barrel over his head. 
Hopefully this segment will serve as a reminder to X-Puck that the group is supposed to be heels, but he'll probably just end up cutting a promo next week where he says, I just beat up an innocent man! Make a little noise! The men in black are the Galaxy Defenders! We then go back to the arena for our next match, Steve Blackman versus Too Sexy Brian Christopher. Amusingly, the match begins with Christopher mocking Blackman's pre-match routine of twirling around his kendo sticks, so Blackman just kicks him in the stomach. Quite effective. A few seconds later, I got very excited because Tennessee Lee walked down to ringside and joined the commentary team to share his amazing accent with the world. If you recall last week, Tennessee Lee said he was going to reveal a big surprise to us on tonight's show, and that surprise is that Jeff Jarrett will be performing at the upcoming Unforgiven pay-per-view with Sawyer Brown as his backing band. Now, personally, I'm not exactly an expert on country music, so I had to look these guys up. Sawyer Brown have been together since 1981, producing 16 studio albums and 58 singles, with three of those albums going gold and three of those singles being number one hits on the U.S. country music charts. So basically, they're a moderately popular band who couldn't afford to say no when the WWF said, hey, you want to play backup for a fake country singer at one of our second-tier pay-per-views? After this monumental announcement, Tennessee Lee then just gets up and walks backstage with the match still in progress. And as for that match, Steve Blackman scored the victory when he hit Brian Christopher with a bicycle kick, then followed it up by putting him in his modified Rings of Saturn-style submission move for the tap-out victory. After the match, Tennessee Lee then came right back out from the backstage area to tell us that the preliminaries were over and it was now time for the main event. With Blackman still in the ring, Tennessee Lee asked for the lights to be dimmed, presumably so Double J could head to the ring in his light-up jacket on his light-up horse. But it was all a ruse. Instead, Jarrett snuck into the ring behind Blackman and clobbered him in the head with a guitar. Now, I could be mistaken, but I think this may be the first instance of Jeff Jarrett using a guitar as a weapon. I don't remember him doing it in the WWF or WCW before this, but I could be wrong, so don't quote me on it. But for now, let's tentatively say that this episode featured the first ever acoustic equalizer. Next up, we go backstage where DX come across the Disciples of Apocalypse's motorcycles. Triple H, your future COO of the company, then dares Road Dog Billy Gunn and X-Pac to urinate on the bikes. Sure enough, they do exactly that, and their actions are censored by large circles which say Degeneration X. This may seem like a good idea now, but what happens later when DX has to deal with the DOA? Oh, oh, that's right, they're terrible, never mind. After a commercial break, Cactus Jack heads to the ring wearing a neck brace and holding a steel chair. We then flash back to last week where DX beat the crap out of him and Terry Funk with a chair, resulting in the New Age Outlaws becoming the new WWF Tag Team Champions. Interestingly, Michael Cole's narration also focuses on the fact that the fans chanted for Steve Austin while the beating was taking place. Back in the ring, Foley is sitting in the chair, and he grabs a microphone. He says that Terry Funk is not here tonight because he was injured and had to fly home, and if Terry Funk is missing a show, it obviously must be pretty serious because that's something he never does. Except for that time in WCW in 1993 when he no-showed a pay-per-view and simply left a note which said, quote, My horse is sick. I think she's going to die. I better go. Which Mick later goes on to describe verbatim in his 2007 autobiography, The Hardcore Diaries. But other than that, Terry Funk always shows up. Foley then begins to tell a story about how Funk was going to retire after winning the tag belts. At this point, that would have been Funk's 846 retirement, I believe. But then Mick's promo takes a rather interesting turn. And, and uh, I hope you saw uh, WrestleMania because it was a tremendous match and I'm very proud of it. And Terry was laying there on the bed with his belt and he said, Cactus, I'm going to be all right because I consider this the last match of my career. See, Terry had always wanted to retire as a WWF champion and he said, Cactus, it's all been worth it. 
but we don't have those belts now, do we? And I, I'm not going to get into the reason why, but I will say that when Cactus Jack was laying, and I was conscious, and I could move, but it was very hard to move, and I was not very far from being unconscious. And when I looked at Terry Funk, well, I heard something in my in my ears that I can tell you the truth, it kind of made me sick. That's there was an announcement being made that thanking the fans for coming to the WWE event and they said something about Stone Cold Steve Austin and uh, yeah people people started chanting his name and it's it's funny because when I came here two years ago and I was mankind there were always people saying you know why don't you just be Cactus Jack then I came out in tie-dye and some white boots and they said you know, why don't you just be Cactus Jack? Well, I gave you Cactus Jack. I gave you every bit of energy I had. And when I was laying there helpless, you chanted someone else's name. Cactus almost sounds bitter here. This is not a knock on Stone Cold Steve Austin. Hey, I'm happy he's the champion. And he may not admit it, but we've known each other a long time, and he's been my friend. But what you did to me and Terry Funk laying here in the middle of the ring was not only distasteful and disrespectful, it was disgusting. And I'm going to give you a chance to make it up to me because I'm going to accept a group apology right now. Cactus is at, he's asking these fans to apologize for cheering Steve Austin. Well, I can finally say for the first time after 13 years of blood, sweat, and tears that it's not worth it anymore. What? what? It's going to be a long time before you see Cactus Jack in the ring again. I want to say for anybody who's even gotten just, just a little bit about a Cactus Jack match, thanks a lot. For the rest of you, hey. Without finishing the sentence, Foley then despondently walks backstage as Jim Ross says, Cactus, goodbye, and thank you. They even do a slow fade to black before cutting to commercial, so it appears we have seen the last of Cactus Jack and perhaps Mick Foley. Well, okay, that obviously doesn't end up happening, but still, it was a very effective promo. After the commercial, we see footage from earlier today of Farouk arriving at the arena where The Rock is waiting for him. They start fighting, but then the other Nation of Domination members jump Farouk. Kama repeatedly hits him with some sort of metal pipe, and The Rock finishes by saying that he was never the ruler of the Nation. This segues us back into the arena where the Nation is walking to ringside. Rock grabs a mic and debuts yet another one of his catchphrases as he says, and I quote, Finally, the people's champ has returned home to Syracuse. 
At this point, I feel like The Rock has been staying up all night thinking of catchphrases to try on television each week, but goddammit, he's obviously making them work. And on a related note, there are several fans in the front row holding up a banner sign which says, Hey Rock, you smell what I'm cooking? Which is particularly impressive, considering The Rock has only used that phrase once up to this point in a pre-taped segment. Clearly, the man is the greatest wordsmith of our time. But anyway, this leads us to our next match, a WWF Intercontinental title match, Champion The Rock versus Challenger Owen Hart. Early on, Kama grabbed Owen's ankle to slow his momentum as he bounced off the ropes, but the referee realized what happened, so he ejected Kama, D'Lo, and Mark Henry from ringside. The match then continued, and it was pretty solid, as you might expect from these two. Owen managed to put the rock in the sharpshooter, and it looked like he was ready to tap, but before he could do so, China ran into the ring and smacked Owen in the back with a baseball bat, drawing the disqualification. She then walked back up the ramp where the rest of DX was waiting. Yes, that's right, folks. You may have thought there was no possible way for DX to one-up Owen Hart yet again, but don't worry, they're still finding more ways to make him look stupid. And now it's time to start the second hour of the show, and we kick it off with Vince McMahon walking to the ring, accompanied by two police officers. He grabs a mic and introduces us to, quote, the new and improved Stone Cold Steve Austin. Sure enough, Austin walks to the ring dressed in a full suit and tie, although he is wearing one of his baseball caps as well for some reason. He goes to the corner and is about to do his trademark pose, but Vince tells him not to do it, so instead Austin just raises one arm in the air. Vince says he is overwhelmed by what he is seeing, and now he realizes that Austin is on his way to being the best WWF champion of all time. However, Vince points out that Austin is wearing his wrestling boots instead of the Gucci shoes he suggested, and then he takes Austin's baseball cap off and throws it into the crowd. Vince asks Austin what made him decide to change, and Stone Cold says that when he was sitting in a jail cell last week, he said to himself, If you think you can beat Vince McMahon, give me a hell yeah. Instead, however, Austin thought, hell no, he can't take down the owner of a billion-dollar company, so he has decided to compromise. He then pulls a camera out of his jacket and asks one of the police officers to take a picture of him and Vince together, holding the WWF title, and then Austin says this. Now you know... The old Steve Austin, the old Stone Cold Steve Austin, would probably tell you to take this camera and stick it up your ass. Hey. Tell him, Vince. I know, but that was the old Stone Cold. Thank you. That was the old Stone Cold. The new Stone Cold wants you to take this camera and get the film developed because this is the absolute last time you will ever see What you see is what you get with Stone Cold Steve Austin. I ain't fancy, and I'm not a redneck from South Texas. You're damn right, and I ain't gonna change for nobody. I got one last thing to say to you, that's hell. Like I told you before, I said it to someone else, I'll say it to you. DTA. Don't trust anybody. Now what I want you to do is bow down for Stone Cold. And Austin gets Vince to bow down in front of him by punching him in the balls. 
Strangely, even though the two cops are standing right there, they don't arrest Austin for assaulting Vince for the second straight week, but maybe that's because dick punches are too hilarious to warrant any sort of criminal prosecution. Austin then takes a picture of Vince holding his wrinklies and says he doesn't change for anyone, and that's the bottom line, because Stone Cold said so. Austin then heads backstage, and Vince limps out of the ring, apparently the victim of a bruised grapefruit. Next up, the Disciples of Apocalypse head to the ring, not riding their motorcycles for obvious reasons. 8-Ball grabs a mic and says, DX, this isn't some bullshit high school game, and yes, he gets censored for saying bullshit. They challenge DX to face them later tonight, which strikes me as rather amusing. I mean, if they're so pissed off about their bikes getting pissed on, why not challenge DX right then and there? I guess I just don't understand biker logic. Maybe I need to up my meth intake. After that, we get a match which Jim Ross bills as the first ever intergender match in the WWF. Luna Vachon, accompanied by the artist formerly known as Goldust, versus Matt Knowles, who I assume is Beyonce's long-lost Caucasian brother. Before the match, Goldust beats the crap out of the jobber, so once the referee rings the bell, Luna just slaps Knowles and then hits him with a top-rope diving headbutt, just like uh, that Canadian wrestler whose name I forget used to do, and she picks up the three count in about 20 seconds. Realistically, though, since Luna is fighting Sable in an evening gown match at Unforgiven, shouldn't she be practicing by fighting jobbers who are wearing evening gowns? Just a suggestion. Next up, we get another vignette introducing us to Val Venus. Referencing the recent Academy Awards, he says that Jack Nicholson may have won Best Actor for As Good As It Gets, but he's currently working on his new movie titled As Hard As It Gets. More penis references ensue, and the title card once again tells us Val Venus is coming. I don't get it. Our next match is Ken Shamrock versus Mark Merrow, accompanied by Sable. Before the match, Merrow grabs a mic and says he allowed Sable to have the spotlight at WrestleMania 14, but now she needs to get the hell out of his face, and he sends her backstage. So why even bother bringing her out there in the first... Yeah, never mind. The match was pretty uneventful, and it ended when Shamrock hit Merrow with a belly-to-belly suplex and was about to put him in the ankle lock, but instead, the Nation of Domination ran into the ring. Shamrock saw them coming, so he ducked out, grabbed a chair, and rolled back into the ring, causing the Nation to scatter. However, the Nation surrounded him on all sides, which allowed Mark Henry to sneak up on him and hit him with a belly-to-belly suplex of his own, followed by a big splash. D'Lo Brown then climbed to the top rope and hit Shamrock with an impressive-looking frog splash as Rock grabbed a mic. Rock reminds us he is the new leader of the nation. He puts the boots to Shamrock, and then he says, and I quote, This is the dawn of a new era. Now, where have I heard that before? Clearly nothing ever changes in wrestling. Up next, The Undertaker heads to the ring for an interview with Kevin Kelly, and Kevin immediately reminds us why he is not a ring announcer. Taker says he absorbed a tremendous amount of punishment at WrestleMania, but he still ended up defeating Kane. Kevin reminds us of Paul Bearer's promo from last week, where he challenged Taker to a rematch on Kane's behalf in an Inferno match at Unforgiven, a match where the ring will be surrounded by fire. Taker accepts the challenge and says that the act of him setting Kane on fire will bring about the beginning of Kane's eternal damnation, but then the lights go out. However, Kane and Paul Bearer are not in the arena. Instead, they're shown on the Titantron, standing in the very same cemetery where The Undertaker cut his pre-WrestleMania promo in front of his parents' graves. Bearer then literally says to Taker, and I quote, I will ensure that you die a slow, agonizing death at In Your House Unforgiven, which would certainly be worth the $29.99 pay-per-view price. Kane then takes out a sledgehammer and smashes the tombstones of The Undertaker's parents. He then takes it one step further by pouring gasoline on the smashed tombstones. As Paul Bearer lights a book of matches and hands it to Kane, 
who sets the gravesite on fire. In fact, let's take a listen. My cane will beat you senseless. He'll pound your body into the cold, hard ground. That's his own mother and father's gravesite. man, the inferno, he will set you ablaze. Oh, oh wait a minute. yes, he will. It's going too what far are they doing? here. Oh, Undertaker. Then the icing on the cake. The fire, the hot fire, we will send you straight to hell. Oh, no. <laughs> He's desecrating yes. his own parents' yes. grave. Obviously, a pretty intense moment, and certainly there was nothing funny about it. However, on episode 6 of Jerry Springer's Too Hot for WWE show, they did actually air an outtake of this segment, where Kane swung the sledgehammer at a bit of an odd angle, which resulted in this. My Kane will beat you into pieces! Oh, sh**! No way! The sledgehammer broke! For the record, if you want another classic Paul Bearer outtake, be sure to look up the clip where a fan videotapes him after a show and says, Hey, Paul, give me five. To which Bearer responds, I'll give you five inches, and then makes several thrusting gestures. Ah, uh, that man will truly be missed. And now it's time for your main event of the evening, a six-man tag match. Triple H and the New Age Outlaws versus the Disciples of Apocalypse. X-Pac joins the commentary team during the match because he clearly excelled so much when he had a microphone earlier in the show. I expected this match to be a quick victory for DX, but it actually went about six and a half minutes with a commercial break in between, and I found online that the official match time was just under nine minutes, which is an eternity by current Raw standards. The match ended when all six men started brawling together in the ring. Chains gave Billy Gunn a backdrop, but then Triple H simply walked over to him and kicked him in the stomach, then hit him with a pedigree, which Chains sold horribly by landing knees first, aka the Kane method, but Hunter scored the three count anyway. After the match, the two teams continued brawling, so X-Pac grabbed a chair for himself and handed another one to Road Dog. The DOA got laid out with chair shots, and Billy Gunn then hit Chains with a pile driver on top of one of the chairs. DX rolled Chains to the outside of the ring where X-Pac pulled out some ropes, so they proceeded to tie Chains' hands into the ring ropes, leaving him unable to defend himself. Billy then grabbed a chair, presumably to level Chains in the head with it. However, before he could do so... LOD2000 ran down to ringside and reignited a huge brawl. The team of LODOA appeared to get the better of DX as the show went off the air with both teams still fighting each other. An interesting end to an interesting evening, and with that in mind, let's go to the wrap-up. Yo, I slayed them seeds back in the rec room era. My style broke motherfucking backs like him for terror. A freak beat slam it like Iron Sheik. We dedicated to cast that's been dug in. Then he passed out more hoes than Jim dug in. I'm bananas, out of my fucking mind. They won't let me back in. Cause I was down before the heights like Dusty Rose and Bob Backlund. Bruno San Martino, Stan Stasiak. Now the rockin' Stone Cold on my favorite maniac. The top rooster pluckin'. Chickens when they pluckin'. Cause WWF stands for women where we fuckin'. The Ratings Recap Last week's post-WrestleMania episode of Raw narrowed Nitro's margin of victory down to just 0.4 as Raw scored a 3.8 to Nitro's 4.2 rating. Did Raw manage to build on that momentum again this week? Well, tonight's episode of Nitro scored a 4.6, while Raw managed a 4.4. Nitro wins for the 84th consecutive week, but the WWF has not been this close to WCW in the ratings since August 5th, 1996, roughly 20 months prior. 
The gap is narrowing, but for now, WCW is still on top. So with that in mind, here is what you could have been watching on Nitro tonight instead, live from Miami, which is also a Will Smith song. El Dandy, La Parca, and Psychosis defeated Judo Sawa, Shima Nobunaga, and Tokyo Magnum. Booker T defeated Disco Inferno to retain his world television title. Kidman defeated Lenny Lane. Conan defeated Norman Smiley. Buff Bagwell defeated Diamond Dallas Page by countout, so Page retained his United States title. Goldberg squashed Hammer. Ultimo Dragon defeated Chavo Guerrero. Lex Luger defeated Barry Darso. Yes, the Repo Man still has a job in WCW in 1998. Brian Adams and Kurt Hennig defeated Jim Neidhart and the British Bulldog. Chris Jericho defeated Juventud Guerrera to retain his cruiserweight title, and because this is an instance of Jericho defeating Hoovy, it means I have to play that famous soundbite where The Rock mocks Jericho's choice of WCW opponents. You think you impressed The Rock? You think you impressed The Rock? Why? Because a couple of months ago, you were down south beating some jabroni named Hooventude? Scott Steiner defeated Sick Boy. And Sting defeated Kevin Nash by disqualification to retain his WCW World Heavyweight Championship. Only 12 matches on the card this week. Clearly, that is why WCW is losing their grip on the ratings war. Just not enough wrestling. Seriously, though, this seems to be a good representation of where both shows are right now. Nitro is three hours of fair to above average wrestling, while Raw consists of two hours of mediocre wrestling, but with a much larger focus on the entertainment aspect. Which show is better? I'm sure your mileage will vary. The Raw Synopsis For my money, I thought this was another very enjoyable episode of Raw. Certainly not as good as last week's post-WrestleMania episode, but fun nonetheless. The continuation of the Austin-McMahon feud, Kane's brutal destruction of the graves of The Undertaker's parents, Mick Foley's emotional promo, all great stuff. Plus, the new DX picked up their first victory, and we even got a Rock vs. Owen match. Can't complain about that. All in all, an easy thumbs up for this episode, which is actually a step in the right direction because up until recently, they've had a tendency to really half-ass these pre-taped episodes of Raw quite a bit. I guess they're finally realizing they need to bring their A-game for every show because they're actually starting to catch up to Nitro. And on that note, on the next episode of the Raw Attitude Podcast, we have a very special episode of Monday Night Raw to cover, and with that in mind, I'm trying to corral some of my colleagues from the Questionable Endeavor Network to join that show. It's pretty difficult to get all of our schedules to line up, but for such a momentous episode of Raw, I will try my best to get as many of them together as possible. Stay tuned to see how that goes. As always, thank you for listening to the Raw Attitude Podcast. I am Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex, and I will remind you once again to feel free to subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Send us an email at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at rawattitudepod. Or, more importantly, write us a five-star review on iTunes, as William Rankin from the New Blood Rising podcast did this past week, because that helps us find an even wider audience. And if you do that, I will be sure to read it on this very podcast and give you full credit for doing so. I have nothing further to add about this episode, so I will leave you now with a clip of scary badass mofo Dan Severn talking about an angle which was proposed to him during his time in the WWF, and how much he was not in favor of it. See you next time. Now I've got one of the road agents pitching me an idea. We want to make you, we want to put 666 across your forehead. Mark of the beast. We want to make you an undertaker disciple and this, that. And as they're going on, I'm like, time out. Not going to happen. And then all of a sudden the road agent goes, you know, Dan, we could start using you poorly. I go, 
what does that mean exactly? He said, well, we could start having you lose matches. I go, that's true. You could ask me to lose a match. But then I pulled out that contract. I go, where does it say on my contract I have to lose to anybody? What if I walk into your world of fantasy and turn fantasy into reality? Which one of your so-called stars or how many of your so-called stars am I going to make look pretty darn silly out there? And the Royal Rumble was coming up. And it even crossed my mind. WCW is still in existence. Maybe I'll go over and talk uh, to Eric Bischoff and just say, you know, when it's time for me to exit that ring, I'll turn fantasy into reality. And I'll clear that ring, just busting up everybody and their brother, and then every 90 seconds waiting for fresh meat to come on down. Now, this is live. This is pay-per-view. What could that have been worth for one night? I think easily a million plus dollars. But some people might not have ever booked me once again, but at the same token, maybe other groups would have booked me even that much more. Because I show people really what, what a word should be worth and not being uh, dicked over on things. There's, there's right ways of doing business and there's wrong ways of doing business. And I was being wronged and, and I know how I could have made it right.